You're listening to PassionPod 34 with Chris Gourlay from Space Hive. Right, my lovely. So, Chris. Yes. You are the founder and CEO of Space Hive. Yes. So I, don't, I wonder if we could just do a tiny wee nugget, actually, about just a really basic summary of how Space Hive works. Yeah. So Space Hive is a crowdfunding platform for civic projects. So the, so the sorts of things we want to help people to fund are playgrounds and high street improvements and new Wi-Fi networks for your town centre that everyone can log on for free. You know, rooftop farms, water fountains, you name it, anything. Uh, big as, and small. As, as, big you... and small. You know, we, we've done everything from crowdfunding at 790 community centre in South Wales to you know a, a guy up in Edinburgh who took a derelict phone box and saved it from the scrap cheap and turned it into a very small art gallery for one and a half thousand pounds. Awesome! Um, and so it's basically all the stuff that's not inside our private buildings, it's in the public spaces, it's the stuff we share and, and that arena where you know traditionally it's it's been a place where things have been done at you by the council. Generally, nothing really happens at all these days because, of course, there's no money. We give you a mechanism that allows people to get their mitts on that space and change stuff uh, to find backers through the platform. And so what we're trying to do is use crowdfunding as a way of tapping the widest possible source of money in a time when uh, cash available through the traditional sources is pretty limited. And so in a campaign, you can see, you know, it'll start with local people chipping in fibers and tenors and 50 quids and 100 quids and all that kind of stuff. That has a kind of magnetic effect in pulling money out of the ether. So your local businesses will get on board. Your corporate's notice this, you know, he's got Tesco chipping in, chipping in 1k, 2k, this kind of thing. Your council's notice because it's in the local paper, it's their voters getting behind something they want to see happen, so they're going to make a contribution as well. And what happens at the end is you've got all the different bits of money that is interested in making that, this kind of change happen, contributing a smaller amount proportionally to what they used to do, but getting you know really good leverage. So it's a model that delivers greater value, but also in financial terms, but also socially as well, because what happens is you know, you've got communities feeling that they can get stuff done. So, you know, Having sort of tested it out a year ago you know, with one or two projects, the point where we're at now, we've got you know a good two hundred uh, on the site, and they're all in all parts of the UK. How on earth do you get into founding something like that? So I used to cover architecture and planning stuff for the Sunday Times, and I did that for about four years, and it was getting to know people in that industry and speaking to them and getting a feel for how it worked, and a combination of that and just walking around streets and thinking, isn't it weird how? It's really hard for anyone who's not a councillor and a developer to change stuff in this space, parks, playgrounds, you know, high streets, whatever. And at that time we had the recession kicking in and money was just draining out of, you know, civic projects. We spent about three billion a year on them. Um, we now spent about 800 million. And I just thought maybe a combination of the fact that there was no money left to pay for the old way of doing things, but also just thinking, God, there must be a better way of doing all this stuff. You know, it's really boring. Planning is boring. So the way it works is, is town hall meetings, notices stuck to lamp posts with staplers and so on and so forth. And it's just a really inaccessible, uncreative, um, uncreative top down way of talking to uh, non experts, if you like. And it's a sort of world that shuts people out. And so at the time of thinking this and, and, and having the economy happen and, and, and learning a bit about the way the, the industry worked, I was also looking across at the US where um, Kickstarter had just got off the ground and they were the first proper sort of you know, crowdfunding platform. And it just looked like this amazing model that was doing two things. One, reaching out to you know hundreds and thousands of funders for projects that people were passionate about and wanted to see happen. Um, so you're tapping a much wider pool of funding. Um, but secondly, it was kind of acting as a springboard for innovation because people were using that ecosystem as a way of getting ideas off the ground that wouldn't otherwise have happened. They could put a project up and rather than having to persuade a councillor or developer or whoever it was, you know, the grant funder, you just asked a crowd to back you. Um, and in that model, seem to be the kernel of uh, something that might provide a solution to the problem of the way we're doing civic stuff um, and the way we do planning and so on. 
um, so I was really interested in the idea that you could take that kind of viral, internet-y, dynamic way of doing things, that kind of online culture, and apply it to this dull, dusty, opaque world of urban planning. It just felt like an amazing clash of, of cultures and a model that actually did have the potential to solve some of the kind of structural problems with the way that the industry worked. So the first thing that makes me think, though, is was there resistance or was it something that people were actually really enthusiastic about? So when I was a journalist and I was thinking about this, I started dropping in bits of the idea. Great, to great market research. Yeah, it was really <laughs> Make good. the most of this. Yeah, so you just go off and see, you know, some guy at Transport for London or, you know, head of a council or whatever, and you can just test out little components of the idea. And I got a mixed reaction. Some people really liked the idea and, and supported it and I became, in fact, advisors who had backed the project when I eventually did it. Others really didn't like it at all and thought it was a recipe for unleashing community anarchism and what they wanted was tidiness and control and for their strategic plans to not be messed with. I have okay. to say though, <laughs> since doing it, all of those people I've gone back to and spoken to and all of them are on board and, and really like it and in fact are actively helping to do stuff. So I think the game was changing around them and, and uh, the money that used to fund the old way of doing things was no longer available and so they had to be receptive to new ideas and because of that reason, launching Space Hive in the depths of a recession when people were fumbling around for a solution to localism, the big society, all of these sorts of ideas, but also just a way of funding this stuff was the best possible time for us. Yeah, because it takes the pressure off the guys that are feeling the pressure, so they'll then support you, I guess, in, in a funny kind of way. That and just there was open-mindedness that didn't exist even a year before. Yeah, it's timing. Extraordinary timing, how important yeah. timing Recession's is. Recession is very good for launching new, new, new ideas, disruptive things. So tell me, just in your little <coughs> timeline, you were a journalist before you. Do you make a decision to stop that and to do Space High full time, or just give us a little potted timeline of how the project I, developed for you? Yeah, so I guess I started doing it in 2009, just thinking about it. And I tried working on things like business plan and putting together a team of people and all this kind of stuff. But it was so time consuming being a journalist that there was really not much time to do anything seriously. So I guess I got to the point where I'd spoken to enough sort of senior people in the industry, sort of tested them out on the idea, done some basic maths on sort of how the business model might, might look and how it might be made to be viable what the size of the market was and all that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, it was just a gut decision and you just, you know, I just felt, I think that I can make this work and I think this is the right moment for it. And so I jumped and, and it was at a fairly early stage in the project. I mean, there certainly was no business plan. I had no advisory board or anything like that. And I had no chair, in fact. But all of that came together really pretty quickly. And, you know, from starting work on it in my bedroom, um, you know, in the few days after I quit, you know, burning through the kind of cash that was available still that I'd saved up before I did it, um, it was just a real race against the clock to try and get it all in place uh, before <laughs> before I'd run out of too much money. And before I, I had some beans for the rest of my life. Well, yeah, it was quite fun. I was fine eating beans and just living on the dole for a bit. It was not a problem, but it's more just, you know, there gets a point where you either have to feel like you're making traction and making progress or you really you lose the ability to motivate yourself. So. It's harnessing that energy, I guess, isn't it, when you have that idea to suddenly, as you say, in your gut, just to sort of yeah. go with it in that moment rather than say, oh, I'm going to wait actually just till this happens and this happens. It's very easy to... To put stuff off, I think, often. Yeah, and you're the worst enemy of your own project in that respect because nobody else sees that feeling. They, they just see you in your bouncy, buoyant mood when you're in your meetings and they can see progress and they don't know how it feels inside. And so actually keeping the story positive and moving forwards is, is actually mostly for you. And How did you find that as a challenge? How did, was it, do you have any tips about how you dealt with that or is it just one of those <laughs> things that you sort of get yeah. on with it? Get a co-founder. Um, okay. Really, really, really good 
tip. <laughs> I was doing it on my own and I got advisors together and eventually started building a team but I don't know what the numbers are but statistics show that people who start businesses on their own are much less likely to succeed. I mean co-founded businesses uh, do much better and have a much higher success rate and it's because you've got the ability to bounce ideas off somebody and when things go wrong you can kind of share the moment. It becomes a social experience rather than just this sort of lone project and so emotionally much easier if, you, if you're in a team, if you've got somebody else to work with. How did you make it work financially in that in-between bit then? So you said you'd saved up enough for, for yeah. the first bit. I was, uh, yeah, I was quite surprised by how little time the money I saved <laughs> afforded me. It didn't last very long at all. Terrifying. So I, I was just really watching it drain at this incredible speed. Um, so it quickly became apparent that I was going to run out of money very soon. And, and so, yeah, I just went under the dole, signed up for housing benefit. Um, and then you're in that difficult position because, of course, the government encourages you to find a job, which you have to do, and you want to go. And you want to, you're going to be looking for jobs and so on. But really, what you want to do is create a business, which is going to employ a lot of people, by the way. Um, which is not a PS bad, government. A bad thing, yeah, note to DWP. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so that that puts you in a bit of a funny position. And that, but you know, it took about ten months, I'd say, of doing that. And then by that stage, we'd raised enough money um, for me to start paying myself and uh, hire one person, and then get the web team in place. We started scoping the thing out and building the platform, and off we went. What would you say your biggest challenge has been? I think it's the fact that it's a very difficult thing to do, which is a sort of annoying thing to say, but it's a complicated thing to do because you're trying to stitch together lots of different worlds that haven't previously been stitched together. And persuading a council to do crowdfunding is an interesting thing. This is not really how councils operate. It's certainly not how the industry is operated. It's just a new way of doing things. Yeah. The whole the whole package is difficult, right? So everything's difficult. Getting the technology right is difficult. Getting it working beautifully is difficult. Debugging it is difficult having to dive right down into the details and make sure that everything's right when you don't have a UX person or a designer to do it that takes time and it's difficult you know getting the team right developing that building it recruiting properly making sure the internal dynamics work making sure you're not a shit manager that's difficult you keep know, them coming keep in, them coming getting, getting investors and trying to find these people who spend money trying to figure out what the psychology ought to be of approaching somebody like that and how you persuade them managing all those expectations that's difficult closing the round you know and then just trying to figure out how you pitch this idea to very different audiences because on the one hand you've got councils and sometimes you've got community groups. How do you deal with people who are in some of the most deprived parts of the UK and persuade them to put their money in, into something like this? Uh, and on the other hand you've got to deal with you know, the heads of marketing at massive blue chips and persuade them to take a risk with their money and their brand reputation by getting behind something which they've never seen of and heard before with a brand new team. So all of these things are challenges and when you're trying to do them uh, on a shoestring with no people and everything else, it's it's hard. And what happens effectively when you get a round of investment to, to go off and do all this stuff is you get a piece of time. You get a clock, you hand it a clock and it starts ticking. And, and so you've got to do it all within that time period. And if you don't, it's curtains. It's pretty brutal. <laughs> it's like, so off you go guys and sign up now. <laughs> but where does the line um, come between that and delegating when it then grows like you obviously have done? You know, is that quite a challenge in itself, having gone from a place where you're actually doing the majority of everything? Um, no, I don't think so. It just You have to wait for the right moment. So inevitably, if you've got an idea in your head, and it's not just an idea which is a, a piece of infrastructure, if you like, it, it's also got a kind of attitude attached to it. It's got a personality attached to it. It's got a voice almost. And it's quite hard for anyone other than yourself to set the tone of that thing. And so to begin with, inevitably, it's you, rightly or wrongly. It's your judgments about things. Uh, but as the thing grows, that learning, that attitude, that ethos, that instinct becomes institutionalized within the team. People just understand it instinctively and, and uh, become skilled and experienced and, and so actually it becomes extremely easy to go. I mean, I've 
people in my team have been with me for a year and year and a half and initially they didn't get these things and this instinct and there's some of there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of distance between us in that respect but they are now brilliant operatives who will go out and bring fantastic new opportunities back and excite people and, and, and so on and so delegating to them when they were at that stage and, and had empowered themselves with the ability to go and do the job brilliantly was not difficult at all it was an absolute pleasure <laughs> yeah it's just it yeah. takes time I guess doesn't it, it like with anything yeah it takes a bit of time yeah and choosing the right people I guess yeah yeah but building a team and, and managing a team and trying to be a decent bosses is, is I mean that was, a, that was another brand new thing <laughs> which, um, which you know nobody teaches you you just have to figure it out give it a go <laughs> Chris what if you could give yourself one bit of advice what do you reckon it would be well I think try not to do it on your own if you can help it because it is so much more fun and more sustainable for your soul to have a co-founder of some sort somebody who's on this journey with you somebody who gets it with you I think that's important um, don't think too long about whether or not to do it. It's important to sound um, people out and to check the market and, and to do some sensible stuff, but at the end of the day, you're never gonna get to a stage where you have certainty with anything approaching a half-decent idea that's got real potential. It's gonna be something that comes from your gut. And at the end of the day, if you've had enough conversations and, and make sure that you've spoken to the enemy, if you like, the people who are most likely to go yuck um, and understood why they say yuck and still find a way round their reaction to a viable business uh, that you think you can make work. At that point, you've just got to trust yourself and do it. I think the the thing that you've got to remember is that um, failing is absolutely fine in most people's eyes. You know, people don't expect every startup to succeed. And just because you fail and your idea didn't work, it doesn't mean that your your future is lost. The the skills that, and the experience that you gain going through that are invaluable and impress others, they notice, um, and make you a stronger person that is easier to hire. And so good failure, constructive failure, can stand you in great stead, so don't fear that. You've been listening to Passion Pod 34 with Chris Gourlay from Space Science.